Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are doing well. If you're here in the US, this episode is dropping on Thanksgiving Day. So happy Turkey Day. Happy Thanksgiving Day. Happy Stretchy Pants Day to all who observe. I, at the time of this episode dropping, will be in Maryland, home with my family, wearing a feathery little dress that I've been dying to wear, and I'll be sporting my new short hair. I just actually, an hour ago, chopped all my hair off. I already had short hair, but now I definitely have short hair, if you know what I mean. Like, it is off my shoulder for the first time since I was in third grade. There was actually a very iconic photo of me, third grade picture day, with nice short cropped hair and I was wearing a choker, the whole look, it was just fire flames back in third grade and now I'm doing it all over again. So I have short hair yet again, kind of bold of me considering I'm going on a first date tonight and you know how like the first couple of days after you cut your hair, you just feel like you've made the worst decision of your life. You feel like you're so ugly. I don't know if this is a universal thing, but I always, no matter what I do, even if I'm just covering my grays for some reason. I don't know if it's like the way my hairline looks after I get a dye job or something, but I always just feel like a little boy. And today with my short, short, short hair, I definitely feel like a little boy. So I'm going to have to just up my makeup game tonight and put on some bronzer. And I feel like that always just helps, you know, uh, a few days after a haircut, it helps to just like go extra on the glam. And then I feel like you just feel yourself again. So that is what the plan is. I'm going on, yes, you heard correctly, a first date tonight because if you guys are listeners of Match Made in Manhattan, my other podcast, or you guys follow me on Instagram or whatever, you might know that I was going on consecutive, really fabulous dates with this one guy after five dates. We were about to go on our sixth. He texted me saying he doesn't want anything serious and like just gave me a heads up that he didn't see anything serious with me or like who knows, you can read into it a million different ways. But at the end of the day, 
he is not looking for something serious right now. And hearing that from him made me realize that I do want something serious, like not necessarily with him. And at that point in time, after five dates, we were going on a sixth date that night. We didn't need to have that conversation yet, if you know what I mean. I wasn't going to bring it up. Like, I wasn't ready. I didn't know exactly how I felt about him. Like, yes, I had a crush and I thought he was really great to spend time with, but I didn't know if I saw him being my boyfriend. But the fact that he had already kind of decided that... Yes, he did say he's not ready for a relationship, and that is definitely probably true, but something about it just made me feel like, okay, well, you also don't see a relationship with me right now. Like After five dates, almost six dates, I feel like he would have known. I would have known as well if I was like, I'm all in. Something about it, just the way that I felt reading the text and afterwards and just, you know, all that being said, we're not a match and it's totally fine. I'm glad that it ended when it did. And I really did go into detail on all of this on Match Made. So if you guys listen to my other podcast, you guys have already heard this or you guys can go back and listen. But that being said, like all of this, I'm unpacking this and sharing this because it does segue nicely into the story that I'm going to tell you guys today on the pod. But just to wrap things up in a nice little bow, I gave myself a week-ish no specific time frame, but I just gave myself some time for it to marinate, for me to think about it, for me to realize, okay, yeah, I'm actually ready to move on. Like, he is not my person. It's okay. Like, I can still keep my head up and I know that I'm worthy and like all those things. Just kind of reaffirming to myself what I know to be true, but it's hard to keep it in the front of your mind, especially when you feel rejected, things like that. So I just, you know, did that, took the precautions, went out with my girlfriends last weekend, had a great dinner, great little time with just the girls. Girls. And then I realized I'm ready to get back on the saddle. So I'm going on a date tonight and there's like really not high stakes. It's just seems like a guy that I would get along with. Like if it goes poorly, that's fine. If it goes great, that's fine. But I leave for Thanksgiving tomorrow. I'm going home for like five days. You know, it's just the perfect thing, I think, to go on a date right before you go out of town because then like you can run away from it and like not think about it if it was bad or it gives you time to like properly think about it and think, okay, did I have a good time or was I just entirely focused on making them fall in love with me? Like, what's the deal, you know? So I'm looking forward to the date. We're just going to a very casual divey sort of bar at 8 p.m. tonight, which I love a divey sort of bar. And this guy seems really fun and nice. And so we'll see. I'm not putting a ton of pressure on myself, just kind of going with the flow, getting myself back out there because I find that dating, it's kind of like a muscle that you have to exercise. You have to keep, you don't have to by any means, but I find that it's easier, less stressful, less like I have a pit in my stomach the hour before the date if I do it often, you know? Like I just, I feel like it becomes less severe, less serious and something that I'm actually doing because I want to. And if you do it a lot, it's just, you know, it's just easier. It's like a muscle. I don't know. Personally, that's how I feel. But anyway, so one chapter closes, another one opens. It might also be closed. Who the heck knows at this point? I'm just, you know, getting out there, sharing my thoughts, sharing my experiences. And that is what I do. So 
Anyway, this leads actually perfectly into what I'm going to be talking about today. If you guys are wanting a story, if you want something to keep you company as you're driving to your relative's house for Thanksgiving or you're just walking with your dog or on the treadmill doing 12, 3.30, I have some really interesting stories for you guys today. Whether you're single, whether you're in a relationship, whether you're like married with kids, whatever your situation is, you will find today's episode really interesting. I just know. I just know. It's one story that leads into another story that leads into another story. Like I did some deep digging for this and I really think you guys are going to like it. So let's get into the story. I don't want to tell you guys too much about what it's going to be about, but if you are in the mood for something a little romantic, you came to the right place. For decades, a tower filled with mysterious books has been an object of intrigue, speculation, and mythmaking. The Cambridge University Library Tower at 157 feet tall and 17 floors, can be seen for miles around and has been a source of rumor and theory formulating amongst students for decades. No one quite knew what books were stored up there, but that didn't stop them from speculating, from making their own theories. I would do the same exact thing. And I read that Cambridge, they actually receive a copy of every single book published in the UK. And this mysterious tower is the place where they put the ones that aren't, quote, academically relevant. So naturally, students are going to wonder, okay, what sorts of books are not considered to be at all academically relevant? Let's think about it. You know, rumors being invented By far, the most common rumor among students for years was that the tower was filled with almost exclusively Victorian porn. So raunchy that the higher-ups at Cambridge had decreed that not one person would ever be allowed to set eyes on it. So let's take a beat real quick in the story to recall what exactly the Victorian era was. So I've actually podcasted about this before many a times. Lots of interesting stuff happened in the Victorian era, but in British history, the Victorian era was the period between 1820 and 1914, which corresponded roughly but not exactly to the period of Queen Victoria's reign. So Victorian era, obviously named after Queen Victoria. Her reign was 1837 to 1901. So technically, the Victorian era bled into like 13 or so years after she passed away technically, but the exact year figures aren't super important to our story. Important though, notably during this time, the UK had developed a class-based society. A growing number of people were becoming able to vote. A lot of things were happening socially and politically. A growing state, growing economy, and Britain's status as the most powerful empire in the world was a thing. So during the Victorian period, Britain was a powerful nation with rich culture. Later in the period, Britain would begin to decline as a global political and economic power because rapidly growing nations like the U.S. came into play, but this decline was not super, super noticeable until after World War II. So for much of the Victorian period, people were doing great. Well, the ones who could afford it. Anyway, but people were getting smarter. I guess that's the most important thing here. Like people were getting smarter. People were getting craftier. People were going against the norm. New things were happening, like not just the same old, same old. Like that's the one takeaway here. Anyway, back to the so-called Victorian porn that was being housed in the Cambridge University Library Tower. It was legend for quite some time that if you dared open any of the books in the Tower of Porn, as it was called, you would be turned to stone or permanently blinded or your library card would be taken away. 
although countless curious observers have tried to gain access to the 157-foot high chamber, no student at the time, up until like 2008, ever successfully uncovered its contents. Since people have like gone on tours, like it's definitely become more of an open thing. But at the time, like before 2008, it was like shrouded in mystery. No one knew what was in the tower. And it was this huge, huge mystery. So for the sake of this story, we're going to pretend like we are in the years leading up to 2008 (laughs) because obviously things are different now. But we're back in like the early 2000s, okay? Put yourself there. Put yourself there. You're wearing low-rise jeans and you have frosted tips if you're a guy. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. So generations and generations of Cambridge students were trying their darndest to get up to the secret tower and see just exactly what was inside there. But obviously, the reason for the tower was to, you know, put all the books that they didn't want anyone to see. So it was very hard. And I don't believe anyone successfully got up into the tower. So the mystery just grew and grew and grew until there was finally this $1 million or 510,000 euro donation from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation given to librarians so the librarians could go and sort through all of the books in the tower, okay? Because apparently they were super unorganized or just no one really knew. Even the librarians didn't really know what was exactly up there. And obviously librarians aren't paid enough as it is. So this grant allowed them to be paid to properly sort through everything in the Tower of Porn, or like just the mystery tower. The kids called it the Tower of Porn. No one else did. So when they did this, they discovered something completely different than what all the students and everyone speculated was actually up there. Instead of this raunchy, desire-filled content, many of the 200,000 texts that were up there displayed a babbling eagerness to speak of romantic love in all of its perplexing yet essentially social aspects. It's a direct quote from this article that I got a lot of my information from that was actually published by a school newspaper, like I believe in the Cambridge area. So it makes it a whole lot more legit. So, and also I feel like you need to read these quotes in like a British accent, which I don't have. So just use your imagination. But some of the titles they found were The New Letter Writer for Lovers, Hints on Matrimony by a Practical Man, and Flirting Made Easy, a Guide for Girls. So books like that, basically love manuals, like self-help lover's manuals, were the the texts, the Victorian texts that were under lock and key. I think maybe, I don't know how they got to that point, like maybe they just weren't deemed relevant to educational pursuits or, you know, people maybe thought that they were pornographic because they didn't open the cover, like they didn't open to read any further and maybe rules were different in the Victorian era. I don't know why they were up there and maybe they weren't academic, but pornographic, they were not either. They were actually quite sweet, a lot of them, some completely misleading and anti-feminist, but they had pure intentions at the time when they were written. Like, obviously, in the Victorian era, women had very few rights, so one can assume that a lot of these romantic, like, how-to books kind of 
I don't know, put us in a very specific position as women, you know, to be courted, to be had, to be pursued and like not much on our end. That's what I initially thought until I did some more digging into the flirting tactics of the Victorian era, which I will be going through today and you guys will find very interesting. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was a little bit surprised, but not fully surprised, you know, not like, you know, knocked off my butt or anything or knocked off my butt, knocked off my feet onto my butt. But <laughs> anyway, we're going to get into it today. But, you know, something about all of this, something about just sifting through these things from the past, specifically when these things have to do with things that I struggle with today. Funny enough, it's oddly nice to see that people did things a whole lot differently back then. And yet the same, like, you know, they're after the same, but or similar results or similar things that I'm after today, but they go about it in a different way. There's more than one way to accomplish something, you know, even in love. So it's all very interesting. So we're going to get into that today. But one of the texts that they found that I want to talk about before I get into a few different areas of flirting previous to the 21st century, uh, one such text that was discovered in the tower said, courtship, as it is generally conducted, is a game of, quote, blind man's bluff. Only both parties are blinded or blindfolded. In blind man's bluff or buff, as it was once called, I read both ways, um, one player is it and is blindfolded and then the other players spin around the blindfolded player a few times. They move around the room calling out to and dodging from and trying not to get touched by the player who is it, obviously, and anyone who is caught gets blindfolded themselves and becomes it in the next round. So, in this text that was found in the tower, they said courtship, as it's generally conducted, is a game of blind man's bluff. Only both parties are blinded. Both parties are it. Both parties are responsible for being stealthy. That's kind of what they said. So, it's really interesting. Anyway, we're going to get into some more interesting things I just know you guys are going to love. So, we're going to dust off today a forgotten chapter in the history of courtship, chivalry, and the bizarre ways that people would flirt in the past. So come with me on a trip down memory lane, everyone. Back in the early 20th century, that is where we are, 1900s, like very, very top of the 1900s, before car ownership became widespread and back seats of said cars became ground zero for makeout sessions, America's young people chose a different mode of transportation for their romantic rendezvous. Rendezvous, plural. Without cars to hide out in and the watchful eyes of their parents, these kids had limited options available to them, so they took to the water. At this time, canoes had recently become widely available. Yes, canoes. And they offered young people an easy, inexpensive escape from those helicopter parents and judgmental chaperones. Because after all, this was the early 20th century, so early 1900s, it was like 1910 or so, you know, things were different. The fact that cars weren't even readily available, like this is before the Model T. This was, if you guys have seen It's a Wonderful Life, like well before that time period even, like It's a Wonderful Life, I think came out in like 1946 or so, if you guys have seen that movie. Amazing Christmas movie, by the way. But yeah, so things were different. You had to make sure like as a young person, like things were very, you know, by the book in the way that you could approach someone and the courtship of it all and making sure that they were from the right family and from the right part of town and like everything was a lot more rigid. So think about that and then think about these canoes. So at this time, canoes had very recently become widely available and they offered young people an easy, inexpensive escape from those helicopter parents and judgmental chaperones. And if you guys have ever wondered where the phrase canoodling comes from, well, now you know. 
canoodling. Think about it. So word traveled fast about the sex appeal of canoes. And in Minneapolis alone, which is the undisputed lake capital of the U.S., for example, 200 canoe permits were issued in the year 1910. And just two years later in 1912, that figure skyrocketed to more than 2,000 canoe permits. In North America, canoes had actually, they'd been around in some shape or form, like not the modern look, but they've been around for quite some time. And they weren't officially or originally made for relaxation or exercise or leisure. They were used by indigenous peoples as a means of efficient transportation along their trade routes. So that was like way back when. Then during the late 1700s, the birch bark canoe was adopted by European settlers from the indigenous peoples. The settlers stole their idea, ripped it off, and used these birch bark canoes to help with the booming fur trade. And then by the mid-1800s, entrepreneurs in the Peterborough area of Canada modified the standard canoe design into a more durable wood plank construction. And that brings us to where we were in this story, the 20th century. Kids were horny and canoes, the modern canoe, was their only refuge. A 1904 souvenir brochure for the Charles River, which I believe is in Massachusetts, advertised their river boat rentals. So their canoe rentals, their other boat rentals saying this, like some wordsmith created this description. They said, if you are fortunate enough to be canoeing at sunset and to spend an evening on the river during a concert or an illumination to see the canoes appearing one by one, tastefully decorated with Japanese lanterns, to hear the sweet tones of a passing guitar or the strains of some glee club floating downstream, you can very easily imagine yourself in fairyland. So they really painted the boat rental as this romantic sort of situation. So if the makeout and romance potential of a canoe date wasn't clear enough, these ads that were actually placed next to this description. So in this souvenir brochure, there was all these ads placed around this with like chocolate companies and like different ways to spruce up the canoe. So like the companies are really feeding into this. Meanwhile, A headline splashed across one town's Tribune read, Girl Canoeists, Tight Skirts Menace Society. So, (laughs) girl, it's kind of a mouthful. Girl Canoeists, apostrophe, their tight skirts menace society. And in the article itself, this supposed park expert on recreation was interviewed, and he warned of the dangers that narrow skirts posed to female canoe users. If their skirts were too tight, they wouldn't be able to swim and could drown if they were capsized. And though it is my first instinct to be mad at just the nature of this headline, at the time, girl skirts were very kind of all-encompassing, like they were long, and a lot of them were tight or they had layers and they had stockings and things that they wore, like nylon tights and things. So yeah, actually, you know, this does have some truth to it, but something about the headline like menaces society, like so dramatic. Like it sounds like this person that wrote this article just like hates fun. And that was not the only news headline about the canoes and the canoodling. A Minneapolis Tribune story reported that, quote, misconduct in canoes has become so grave and flagrant that it threatens to throw a shadow upon the lakes as recreation resorts and brings shame upon the city. (laughs) (laughs) Misconduct in canoes. So funny. Anyway, as further proof that canoeing had become a hotbed for, quote, teenage delinquents, in 1913, the Minneapolis Parks Board... I have a very hard time saying Minneapolis. I'm sorry. Like, I don't know if you guys have caught this, but Minneapolis Parks Board 
1913, they refused to issue permits for canoes with, quote, unpalatable names. So like raunchy names or like suggestive names. Like the kids had decided when they were registering their canoes, they would poke fun at the whole concept of like being written about in the papers and register their canoes under these, quote, suggestive names, which weren't even that suggestive. I must say, but I guess it was obviously a different time. So I'm going to read you guys some of them. Local newspapers actually ended up publishing some of the offensive phrases that slipped past the park board, including, I'm going to read a few of them. They're kind of clever because if you look at them, like I'm going to read them and you're going to know like that they're suggestive. But if you look at them, like it would just take you reading them out loud to know if that makes sense. So this one says, come on in kid, but come on in is all one word. So it looks almost like a movie title. Kiss me quick. I'll get you. I'll come in, gee, I love you, squeeze me tight, I dare you, wink at us, O-U-Q-T, O-U-Q-T, what the question mark, joy tub, Cupid's nest, and I would like to try it. So those are some names, but if, like I said, if you look at it, it just, you know, you would never know. So that's why it slipped right past the board and they let them have these on the back of their canoes, I guess, or I don't know if that's like how it goes with canoes. I know with boats, you put your name on the back, but I'm not sure. Anyway, so the commissioners unanimously agreed to outlaw phrases lacking obvious moral and grammatical standards, though a few of these clever puns and abbreviations slipped right on through past their better judgments. Trying to satisfy those who issued the complaints, park authorities instituted a 12 a.m. midnight curfew, which honestly I feel is kind of late. Like for some reason I envisioned something much earlier when I read about a curfew being instilled. Like I feel like a curfew of midnight is kind of like modern. It doesn't feel like at that time, like that would have been good enough, you know? Like the sun goes down at like six or seven or eight, depending on the time of year. So that gives them a lot of time for canoodling after dark. So I feel like that should have been earlier, but whatever. I'm not going to be the kid that's like, you forgot to collect the homework for the class. Like I'm not going to be that kid. Like that's what I feel like when I say like it should have been earlier. Like no. That being said, park police patrolled the waterways in state-of-the-art motorized boats, which was huge for the time equipped with spotlights and would look out for any suspicious behavior. And after one canoeist, one guy was fined $20. And if you think about it, $20 was actually back in like the early 1900s, like 19, I don't know, 1910 or so. This was the equivalent of nearly $600. So he was fined like almost $600 for smooching his girl in a canoe. So this guy was caught and he was made an example, but a Boston Herald writer joked that millions of dollars of illicit kisses are stolen every weekend at, quote, canoeing events. So yeah, canoes became the spot to have your cheeky little makeout sesh, which I find it so interesting. So I'm like, canoes, they aren't that big, but I guess they were fit differently back then. I was looking at some pictures and they could have been used, but I'm like, this is not big enough. Like, I feel like we'd have to literally be on top of each other. Or I don't even know. Like, how would that go down? I feel like I would totally capsize. Like, I would capsize mid-makeout. I would. But anyway, so that's the first little tale I wanted to share. And the next one, we're going to have to step further back in time to something a little bit more tangible. Two, actually, two more tangible ways of expressing interest romantically, both involving paper. During the late 19th century in the U.S., and now we're in the late 
19th century, so the 1800s, late 1800s, these things called escort cards acted as an early form of dating apps as the card recipient, the person who received the card, could essentially swipe left or swipe right on potential suitors by following instructions that were on each card. And the cards themselves, they were about the size of a standard business card, and they varied in terms of how they looked and what the instructions were, but the recipient could respond by either penciling in a yes or a no or by keeping or returning the card depending on the card. It kind of gives me like flashbacky vibes to, I don't know, like elementary, middle school, or maybe even high school. I feel like but in middle school, people would like pass notes and say like, will you be my boyfriend? Will you be my girlfriend? Like check yes, check yes, Juliet, you know? So it's kind of giving that. But at the time, society was rigid and conservative as it was the 19th century. So Victorian era again. So the same time frame as the love books tucked away in the Cambridge Tower. So these cards were a useful way for a man to sneaky ask out a woman that he had his eye on without having to ask for her parents' permission to speak with her or require an escort. All he had to do was slip the card into her hand in passing and wait for her to respond. And I found some of these cards in a Twitter thread that I'll have linked, but please allow me to describe the look of each of them and who I think would have composed them or what kind of person, rather. So all of these were written by men or created by men. And I kind of gave like superlatives to each one. Okay, first up is the raunchy flirt. And the top, like the headline of the card, it says raffle in all caps. So raffle, already puzzling. And it says raffle for a double jointed, steam heating, anti-corrosive, self-acting, non-explosive, back action, centennial bustle. So like that's describing a woman, I guess, because um, there's a an illustration of a woman on the left side. And it says, warranted not to rip, rovel, or run down at the heel. Don't know what that means. Or revel, maybe is the word. For the benefit of a young lady suffering from the pullback, tickets, three smacks and a squeeze. So... It just, you know, I don't really know what this means, but it just gives me the creepy, raunchy, flirty vibes. Raunchy flirt. Okay, the next one is flirty and sweet, potentially creepy, but probably just trying to be funny. And this one says, may I see you home? Question mark. Then underneath it says this guy's name, which was W.S. Alexander. And then under that it says, or will I have to sit on the fence and watch you meander by? And there's an illustration of a guy with a hat sitting on a fence watching a woman with like a parasol walking down the street. So, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of funny. Next one is has his shit together looking for a wife type. And there's two that I thought fell under this category. So this one is very stark. Like there's no illustrations on this card. And it says confidential card between ourselves. May I have the pleasure of seeing you home this evening? Like that is all it really says. If so, keep this card. If not, please return. So this is very like short, to the point, not funny, not cute. Just like, here you go. Keep this card if you want me to walk you home. And then the next one says, let's get acquainted. If you have no objection, I will be your protection. And then it shows an address line, a phone number line. And then it says a chance of a lifetime for you are certainly my selection. Yours with affection signed. And then there's a spot for the name. So yeah, this guy likes rhyming, but that's sweet. Okay. And then the last one is the playboy which kind of resonates or resembles rather the first one I said, but this one says, let's get acquainted. And then it shows his net worth. Like his net worth is in the top right corner. $60,000 net worth. It says capital, like 
how much money he has or I don't know how much money he makes, how much money he has. And then it says the guy's name, Elmer Miller in like script. And then after that, underneath it says ragtime millionaire looking for someone to love. Kind regards to friends and knockers, not married and out for a good time. So I don't know the fact that this guy calls himself a ragtime millionaire, like I don't know. It's just giving me some sort of vibe. Then the next one, which I thought also fell under that category of like the Playboy category, says, My dear creature, if you would allow me the privilege of escorting you home, I should consider it too awfully all but. And the reason why I put it in this category was it says, My dear creature. And I find like creature to be kind of demeaning. I don't know. I don't know even then if it was the right thing to call a woman a creature. I wouldn't like that personally, except for if Harry Styles does it a la sweet creature, but like dear creature sounds, it doesn't sound right. Okay. Sweet creature sounds great. I just need to clarify that. Oh, one more is the poetic guy. The guy who he just, you know, he's poetic. He probably lives in Brooklyn. He probably has uh, one of those old like film cameras. It says in quotes, two souls with but a single thought, two hearts that beat as one. And then under that, it says, may I be permitted the blissful pleasure of escorting you home this evening, yours. And then a blank and there's two frogs holding hands. So anyway, those are just some examples of the escort cards that honestly, I think it's kind of like mysterious and interesting. You know, this was a thing. So the cards were also an excellent way to avoid those helicopter parents and chaperones since an interested party could just slip one into their intended party into their hand very discreetly and the latter could then hide it behind their glove or a fan or a handkerchief or parasol or even in her skirts. So Lots of spots to hide it. I'm picturing Bridgerton, like the Bridgerton area where like the park where they all walk around and just someone slipping it into a gloved hand of a lady that they fancy. Like it's just kind of cute. And like it's funny that like the gesture was let me walk you home. And I feel like the walking home or like the act of walking someone home, like I feel it's been kind of lost. I guess here in the city I've had some guys walk me home, but it's almost like they walk you home like hoping for an invitation. It's giving sex in the city, but I still feel like not many girls I've spoken to that go on dates in the city get walked home by the guy they go on a date with. They're like, okay, I'm going to get an Uber. Bye. Or like if they don't live in New York, you drive to the date on your own and like drive home. You know what I mean? It's like very the walking home element. I don't know. Anyway, and now on to the obvious the written letter. I told you guys there's two tangible things I was talking about, two things involving paper. And the second is the written letter, which I just refuse to let the written letter die out. It is such a form of good manners. If you ever, you know, are appreciative of something, just like writing a handwritten note, it goes such a long way. And I actually, I've talked about this before in like a very old episode of the podcast, but I actually wrote a love letter to a guy that I liked in like end of middle school, early high school. I wrote a love letter and I like even stamped his name like with like those little stampable letters and wrote in cursive and I put it in his mailbox and it was so romantic until he texted me like a three word reply saying he's not into it. (laughs) But I refuse to let it die. I will write my future significant other letters like you best believe. Anyway, so into the love letters, the love letters and some interesting things about Victorian love letters that I would never know that honestly I find so interesting. So we're back to the Victorians, the people that were the most avid letter writers, as we definitely are aware, with some areas of London actually having the mail delivered up to seven times a day, meaning that a note could be written, mailed, and delivered all in the span of just a few hours. Seven times a day. It's almost like 
you know, they were texting, but obviously not. But like seven times a day, like, I don't know. I think I send a text if I'm, you know, working and doing things. Like if I'm getting texts, I usually keep my phone on do not disturb and I answer people like seven times a day, I feel like, like seven spurts. So I'm kind of on the same page as them. If like I was a very, you know, I was keeping up with the seven times a day thing. A letter could be the perfect way to express the fact that you fancied someone then and now, but because of strict Victorian manners and how flowery and vague that the language was at the time, you might require a manual to help you out with said love letters. As a result, numerous letter writing guides were published that provided literal template letters for first-time love letter writers. And the books with these templates were actually found in the Cambridge Tower, obviously, linking us back to the beginning. But the new letter writer for lovers was one such manual found in the tower. And I'm going to read you one of the sample templates that was in the book. So this is just one of many, but this was designed for a man seeking to begin a courtship with a woman after only meeting her one time. So he wanted to kick things into gear. He wanted to see her again. He wanted to begin the courtship, go to her house and meet her parents and all the things, but he'd only met her once. So here is what the manual suggested he should write to this woman. Madame, I scarcely can find courage to address you, and particularly as I cannot flatter myself that you have noticed me in any way, but at the risk of incurring your displeasure, I feel compelled to express with all difference the anxiety that I feel to become better acquainted with you and to confess that you have inspired feelings warmer than those a mere acquaintance might warrant. So, yeah. (laughs) Imagine a guy that you you know, met out at a bar or something or a girl or whoever you meet at the bar and, you know, you get their number, they get your number and they text you the next day, like this sort of message. And it would probably in like modern terms, it would probably go like, Katie, I'm really nervous to text you and you probably don't think of me this way at all, but I really want to get to know you better. Even though I'm very anxious about the concept of getting to know you better, like I just want to get to know you as more than a friend, but I'm sorry if this pisses you off. Or like that's like pretty much what that means in common terms. Like this uh, guy seems very um, anxious. (laughs) Like I don't know if I would suggest that to someone, but alas, maybe that's how people wrote things back in the Victorian era. But something interesting. So this is the interesting part that I really was like, wow, that is very cool. So back in those times, you needed to be super careful with where you adhered the stamp, like where and how you fixed the stamp to the envelope. It was sometimes difficult for 19th century lovers to keep their letters private, as most times notes could be read aloud in front of the whole family. Like the note gets delivered, The matriarch, the patriarch, reads the letter in front of everybody, and that could be so embarrassing to these young lovers. So to bypass this, some reportedly began to use the positioning of the stamp on the envelope to reveal a secret message. And the exact meaning of the different stamp positions likely varied between couples, but over time, a number of writers attempted to codify the system. Like there were some repeat offenders, some things that were used or done many times over. So they decided that there should be like this key to, you know, decipher like, okay, this means that. And I found one such key that was published in a very old book. Like it looks very old. I'm going to have the source linked, but it just like looks very old. So I'm like, I trust this one. <laughs> Classic. And it says it's titled Postage Stamp Flirtation. I'm going to read some of them. So this is the positioning of the stamp on the envelope. If it's upside down on the left corner, it means I love you. Same corner, crosswise, which crosswise, I feel like either clockwise, maybe that means clockwise. And it says, my heart is another's, like that's what it means. It's 
my heart does not belong to you. It's someone else's. Straight up and down means goodbye, sweetheart. Upside down on the right corner means right no more. Wow, brutal. In the middle, at the right hand edge, right immediately. That's what it means. And then in the center at the top means yes. Opposite at the bottom means no. On the right-hand corner at a right angle, it means do you love me? In the left-hand corner, it means I hate you. The top corner at the right means I wish your friendship. Bottom corner at the left, it means I seek your acquaintance. Online with the surname is accept my love. The same but upside down is I'm engaged. What the heck? (laughs) At the right angle, the same place, I long to see you. So honestly, you couldn't fuck this up because like you'd be saying something totally different. How crazy. So eventually, postal administrators decided that stamps had to be placed in the upper right-hand corner of envelopes in like a very specific way, thus ruining the flirtation system, which is a bummer, but crazy. Like, honestly, leave it to the kids to find some crafty way to do things like first the canoes, then the postage stamp, and allow me to share another way, yet another way that the Victorian era flirters flirted. (laughs) Like how the romantics of the Victorian era, how they flirted. One last way. I think this might be the last one. So flirtation tactic from the past, number four, is In the classifieds, newspaper classified ads often provided a safe space for Victorian romance to bloom or people to get secret messages across to their lovers. And honestly, it's kind of giving, if you like pina coladas, like that one, that song where basically the husband and wife are like looking to cheat and they end up with each other. Like, spoiler alert, yeah. Anyway, so Dr. Alan Wythe, who is a historian at the University of Exeter, examined the classified ads in the London newspaper The Evening Standard between the 1870s and the 1890s and found what he called a, quote, hotbed of sexual tensions. And one of the classified ads that he found in this newspaper said this. It said, C-A-D, which... I assume to be someone's initials, utterly miserable and brokenhearted. I must see you, my darling. Please write and fix time and place at all risks. Can pass house if necessary, unseen in close carriage or close carriage, but like in a carriage nonetheless. Another one said, kitten, I hope you're happy. I am most miserable. Do write to our house before Wednesday next. I cannot bear a year. Pray, let me see you for old love, which is still stronger. These little dust-clad remnants of broken hearts and illicit affairs are so interesting and honestly a bit spooky since we really don't know how these stories ended. Like, did CAD or Kitten, did they get the message? Did they read the paper that day? Did they ignore them? Did CAD tell her lover to drive by her house in the carriage? Like, what happened? I mean, one can assume the public display of like publishing this in a newspaper, like, you know, where anyone could read it, like it's very all out, very out there. This method of doing so, like this could suggest a very high level of desperation. Like, you know, it's a a last ditch effort, last ditch attempt to save a sinking ship. Like this last classified message that the historian found them in a read, it says, always at 11, in all caps, and I'm not sure what that means, but it says, Dearest, I have obeyed your letter. Have mercy, you are breaking my heart. Never to see you, never hear, save to bid me not come. 
For God's sake, dear love, end this one way or the other. I cannot bear it. You are too cruel. (laughs) Damn, (laughs) that guy's going through it. Anyway, so that was the last one. But Victorians, the Victorians, guys, they were dedicated. And maybe it's the way that everything they wrote and said just feels so much more serious than the way that we speak now. And the things that they did, the gestures of showing affection are so much more dramatic and time-consuming that just sending a text or asking you to buy her a $7 vodka soda, like the things that they did just feel so much more romantic than, than the now, than the ways of showing affection now, or like, I guess the general ways, like obviously some people are very, very romantic and great, but the experiences that I've had and many of us have had, you know, It's just not the same, even though hearts broke just as easily then as they do now. But it is interesting to look deeper at people living and loving in the Victorian era. But back to the book tower at the beginning of our episode, the surge in publication of those loved up courtship manuals is proof to the pudding of how times were changing in the Victorian era. Like now that you no longer married the boy next door or even from the next village, like it wasn't a requirement because of changing technologies and freedoms and a new way of doing things in a lot of areas. It was necessary to keep up with all the change. And granted, you know, in your village, like women weren't walking around like they owned the place yet. They didn't have the freedoms and a lot of things were still necessary for progress. Like don't even get me started on the racism of it all and the classism and everything. So they had a long ways to go, of course, but things were, you know, a little bit more progressive, like are getting more progressive at the time, like during the Victorian era versus all times to come before that. Romance being one of them, like forever, things had been very word of mouth, stories from elders about how they got married to the boy next door because there truly wasn't any other option. But as time was going on, more and more options were becoming available, not for everybody, but for a growing number of people. You were just exposed to more people as technology advanced and voting became a thing. And like, you know, there's just like all these ways that people could get access to more people, therefore flirtations expanding and your options romantically expanding. So naturally, like you're being exposed to people from different walks of life and you it's not just the person you've grown up with anymore that you're getting married to because you have to. So therefore, that's why the manuals were born and people began instructing other people on how to flirt, how to do things. And now we have TikToks and ways and romantic experts and people that make videos on how to win over a guy, how to get a guy, how to do this. I even have videos back in the day of like how to flirt, how to do things. And I'm like, who did I think I was like giving these instruction manuals? But the very such things, instruction manuals on like romantic manuals were literally the talk of the town in this Cambridge library, people thinking it's porn because I think a lot of us, though there is a lot of resources out there, I think a lot of people have lost the art to like, or seeing romance as this thing that maybe it isn't going to be perfect, but there are different, you know, it's something to be taken seriously, seriously enough that you might buy a manual on it, you know? Like it is interesting to see how the Victorians like did take things very seriously in a way that's almost kind of enviable now, but then also like, Different times, different times. But as I was reading through a bunch of the titles and like a little synopsis of the books that were in the Cambridge Tower, the romantic novel, or not novels, manuals, (laughs) they're manuals. I guess some of them were kind of novels. I was reading there was like some like kind of romance novels, honestly, like the Colleen Hoover of Victorian era was found up there. But for the most part, they were manuals, like self-help books almost on like how to. And a lot of them, majority of the titles that I read were directed at women, which I guess... I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe it does. Like, maybe I don't know how much men read back then. Like, I don't really know. But it's beginning to kind of hit me that 
Victorian women, and I guess I would go out to say, like go on a limb to say that a lot of us are like this, like us women. Victorian women aimed for the romantic best, but also prepared for the worst with the manuals. Like I'm a big preparing for the worst kind of person. Like I've become this glass half empty person when it comes to romance over the years, which I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing or trying to save my pride. And I don't know. I try to stay level, but sometimes it results in me being a little bit glass half empty. But to help, you know, the women out at the time, they were definitely not above buying a book to tell them what to do. And I suppose that's my typical way of problem solving and learning through reading and sometimes doing, but a lot of times it's through reading. But maybe that just goes to show that women were and generally are more methodical in their flirting. Like I think generally speaking, like we have a method to our madness. We're very calculated. It's giving like mastermind Taylor Swift. Back in 1711, The Spectator, which was a daily newspaper written by an English writer named Joseph Addison. This is 1711, like way back in time. He printed an article about women's use of fans to flirt. So you might remember from like various films like The Fan, Bridgerton, Enola Holmes, I just watched recently, she uses the fan. But this is what he said in his article. He said, women are armed with fans as men with swords and sometimes do more execution with them. The use of fans, handkerchiefs, or even parasols for flirting is mentioned in many shows and movies, but opening and closing a fan or hiding your face behind the fan, it was a direct line of communication with suitors, either showing interest or lack of interest and Dropping your handkerchief or fan meant we'll be friends. It's giving the stamps once again, but dropping your parasol means I love you. Tapping the chin with a glove or parasol means I love another, but placing your forefinger of your left hand on your chin while sitting in the window means I desire an acquaintance. I feel like that's me all the time. Like I'm just sitting at my desk with my left hand on your chin. Like I think that's how I usually sit when I'm um, working. Anyway, knowing me and how clumsy I can be, I definitely would accidentally drop my umbrella and accidentally therefore tell someone that I love them. Anyway, that would happen to me. But yeah, it's a lot of jumbled thoughts, but a lot of good stories. And it's just, it really makes you think about modern day flirting and how, you know, men and women, I don't know if I flirt very well. Like, I think I need to brush up on my skills, but it's just so different. It's not as codified. It's not as Like, I don't even know if a manual would really benefit me in New York City. I don't even know. But it's just interesting to think about it and to think about how also for decades and decades, people thought that there was Victorian porn hidden in the Cambridge Library, but it really turned out to just be a bunch of romance novels and romance manuals. Like, how interesting is that? But anyway, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you guys are having a fabulous Thanksgiving or day if you don't celebrate. And I hope to talk to you guys all next week on Thursday in another episode of Thick and Thin. Take care, everyone. Happy holidays. And I am brain dead after this episode. I have to say bye. Goodbye. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. 
And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.